It is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this... Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, um, we're going to talk today about something that's very near and dear to our Anglican heritage, um, probably the most important product of our Anglican heritage, which is uh, the English Bible. Um, obviously, uh, the translation of the Bible into English far predated, you know, the uh, official break with Rome, um, but it certainly contributed to it. And, you know, the fountainhead of the English translations of the Bible that we enjoy today come from uh, from efforts uh both preceding and during and then directly after the time of the Reformation. Um, so let's talk, let's do what we did in our, uh, you know, in our origins of Anglicanism episode. And let's talk about the very beginning of the translation of the Bible into English. Um, and, you know, it's, it's heritage, what it means to us and, and, and what it continues to mean to us today. Oh, well, yeah, we have a very rich tradition um, in the British Isles going way back uh, prior to the 14th century uh, where we have the first actual we have the first full bible in english what we have is people who translate you know some parts of the bible you read a lot more than other parts and so if the first things people were really interested in were the psalms because you use them a lot in worship the gospels of course you know the stories of jesus and the and some of the stories from the first books of the bible from genesis you know the historical books genesis exodus those stories and so we, the ori- original things into Old English were, frankly, um, translations typically of pieces, typically selected psalms or maybe a whole psalter sometimes, portions of the Gospels or entire Gospels. Actually, the Venerable Bede translated the entire Gospel of John. Oh, yeah. I didn't know into, that. Into English. Yeah, he did. And again, stories, Bible stories, you know, the books like Genesis and Exodus because of the stories, parts of Numbers, etc. Probably be hard to read today, right? <laughs> Well, it's old English. Old yeah. <laughs> English is uh, really like if you if you've done Beowulf back in in high school and things, you know how different it sounds. Yeah, almost a different language. It looks more like German than English, frankly. When you look at it, you could a serious English speaker could not know. Like if you're a French speaker, when you look at Old French and Middle French, you clearly see they're French. Uh huh. A modern speaker ha- without training can't read them as such. But there's no question what language they are. I think you could look at Beowulf and really wonder. Uh, whether this is English, um, you know, old English as opposed to something like Middle English, like Chaucer's English. Sure. You know, sure. So we have those. Uh, Alfred, uh, you know, wrote uh, wrote some early translations and things. Something I love is sometimes in the manuscripts that we have of, this, of, the, of the Latin Psalter, like to sing, mm-hmm. people would write English words underneath. Oh. <laughs> to help out. You say, hey, but you think this is cool. Guess what this means? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> What we basically find, though, again, so it's always portions. There's no nothing close to a Bible or a New Testament. They're just portions of things that commonly read parts of the Bible. Sometimes they just do pure prose. Just say, here's literally what it means. Sometimes they like paraphrase, tell the story, yeah. especially the Old Testament story. Just tell the story. Sure. 
And sometimes what they like is metrical translation. Say, let's make it uh, so it's really readable. You know, like the Psalms will really sound like something we'd think of more like song. Okay. So it's like translation with different use cases, right? So, you know, yeah. how are you trying to digest the scriptures? You have, you know, angle our translation toward that. But no one was talking about translating the Bible. They were just talking about, hey, we always read the Psalms. Wouldn't it be nice to know more about them? So, I mean, you know, to, to really un- understand them more, have a translation over the Gospels and things. Not the idea of let's have the whole Bible. That thought would, didn't occur to anyone. Okay, so let's talk about the first time that happened. The first time the Bible got translated into English. You know, we're normally talking, we, we normally talk about the time of the Reformation coinciding with these great efforts. But wh- when, when actually did this first Bible get translated into English? That's a really good point. The Bible was translated well before the start of the Reformation. You know, the first uh, efforts were inspired by John Wycliffe, and he died back at the end of the 14th century. Mm. So the Reformation, the beginning of the 16th. So about 125-odd years or so before the Reformation, we have John Wycliffe. He's a neat guy. John Wycliffe, though, is, is not what you'd think. John Wycliffe, I think we might have mentioned him in one of our episodes and things, was a classic Oxford John. Mm-hmm. Think about um, think about C.S. Lewis but not nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you've got, you got John Wycliffe. I mean, this guy had a tongue on him, you know, so yeah. it's, but he has a sort of, you know, Oxford Don feel to him. Sure. But he was really persuaded in the need for popular preaching and things. It was one of his things. And we know he inspired the effort. We don't know how much, whether he translated anything. All we know is he inspired the effort. Mm. And two people who really were close with him, we know were workhorses. So he might've been very involved. We just honestly don't know. Yeah. But in 1384, uh, right, uh, you know, before he uh, was published in the year he died, a version came out by Nicholas Herford, you know, who was one of his colleagues at Oxford. And then in 1397, we had another version uh, that comes out from John Purvey, who was actually his personal secretary. So this was well after he died. So we're talking about, you know, um, uh, you know, over a decade after, after he died. Sure, sure. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this Bible, though, is it's completely translated from the Latin Vulgate, the standard Latin Bible, what we call the authorized version of the Latin Bible, yeah. the Latin Vulgate. And Vulgus in Latin means, means common people, means a Bible for common usage, you know, the accepted Bible of the Latin world, the Latin Vulgate. And it was a direct translation, never did the thought of looking at Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic occur to anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. He wouldn't have had the skills anyway. These, were not, these are not widely held skills at this time. So he just literally took the Latin Bible Latin being a standard language, uh, you know, the people, you know, used in universities, they taught their courses in Latin things. He simply just literally, it was translated. Now, what they tried to do is it was very wooden. Now, what I mean by wooden is, let's suppose you're taking a, a language like French or something, okay, and you're, you're trying, you're learning it uh, from English and things. And so you're, if somebody's translating from French, they might say, you know, in, in English, you say, I need, I need a pencil. In French, you literally say, I have need of a pencil. Okay. No native English speech, you understand it's correct English grammar, but no one would talk like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if you tried to just go word for word, you would have some weird... It was very literal and very wooden. Even worse, the first version by Nicholas Herford wasn't even good Latin because this guy, you know, Latin, um, without getting a lot into this, is an inflective language, meaning in English, we have to, if we say the man bit the dog or the dog bit the man, those don't mean the same thing. Yeah. In English, we can tell what the subject is by where we put it. Right. In languages like Greek and Latin, that's not true. Hmm. 
they uh, uh, they have a different form. Like we do in English, we'd say something like, he saw me, but I saw him. See, he and him tells us who's getting the action, who's not. Right, right. In those languages. So he would sometimes literally just follow the Latin order, even if it was sort of the opposite. Okay. It would really be sort of weird. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, it was better than nothing. It was more like a, what we used to call a pony. A pony meant a very literal translation you could use when you're studying Latin. You I know, see. To okay. Try to master a text. Second version was a lot better because the first one was trying to do word for word. And John Purvey really said, you know, we really have to do more sentence for sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the second version, which is the more popular one. We have uh, we have like over 180-something, I think. Uh, I'm pulling off the top of my head. I think it's like 180 or something copies still left. Or not, portions of copies still left. Yeah. It uh, was a lot better. But it was never printed. Again, this is before printing. Sure, sure. Okay, wow. So, but that, at least for the first time, we had tried in the English language to have the entire scripture somehow available to people who only knew English. Okay, yeah. So that gets started, you know relatively early like we're talking 14th yeah. century certainly a time of uh ferment and need for reform in the church that's for sure yeah, very late 14th so yeah. it's like a century before the reformation yeah a little over yeah. a century before the reformation so so that gets the ball rolling um but let's talk about the bibles that come out over the course of the reformation period um so what just give us an overview on you know what bibles come out at this time well, actually, they're in the in the Reformed tradition. I mean, in the, in, in the Reformation family, we had eight separate versions or revisions of the Bible come out, and they built on each other and things. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. We'll talk about them. And there's also one Roman Catholic version. Yeah. The demand uh, became so great that they actually put out a Roman Catholic version as well. So basically, in a space of 100 years, we end up with nine English translations of the Bible. It coming up with one of the masterpieces of world literature, the King James Version, the the what's commonly called the Authorized Version. We'll find out later that's ironic, by the way. <laughs> huh. Well, let's talk about. Um, so there's another big name um, that uh, I guess if you want to chart what are the most important figures in English Bible translation, maybe you can look at which ones uh, have share names with modern nonprofits. So the first one being Wycliffe Bible translations. Uh, the other one is, of course, William Tyndale. Um, so let's talk about William Tyndale. When did he live and how did he translate? Well, he lived um, in the early 16th century, the time of the Reformation, and he very much was committed to making the Bible available in English. And uh, he actually uh, knew Greek and uh, Greek well, and uh, Hebrew, he knew some Hebrew, uh, enough you, you could do a translation, a basic one. And so he actually translated for the first time from the original languages. Remember, Wycliffe and everything that was done before Wycliffe was always from the Latin Bible. The Latin Bible was the Bible. Yeah. And they would translate from that. But he, with the uh, theory of the Reformation, we need to go back to the original sources, mm-hmm. actually translated the New Testament from the Greek. Okay. There's that There's that he, humanism impulse right there. Yeah. That's right. And he had the skills. I mean, he really had the skills to do it. And he also translated the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books. He translated those from the Hebrew as well as the book of Jonah of all things. Okay. Wow. All right. Just Jonah. But he never, that's all he translated, by the way, is he did not translate the whole Bible. Right. Uh, sadly, um, he was actually a martyr. Um, he had a lot of trouble with his New Testament. Now, something to be say, what would we find so objectionable? You know, they actually hounded him down on the, con- on the continent. Yeah. He's a good man. 
they had to trick him to actually get him, and he was burned. He was, uh, you know, burned at the stake in the Low Countries mm-hmm. of Brabant. Yeah, is they had to trick him, saying a friend of his needed his help, was dying. That's how they tricked oh, him to man. come into a place where he could be arrested. That's, that's pretty. That's low. low. I was about to say that's super low. But that's why he never he never finished again um, because he was he did die. One thing about this man, though, is he has an amazing sense for the cadences of the English language. Hmm. Hmm. It really strikes you. One of the things that strikes you if you come to English from another language is it's really struck you by these these cadences. Like, think of English poetry is based on where the accents fall. Yeah. Listen, my children, and you will hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. You know, it's kind of weird. Yeah. English yeah. is very characterized by individual words have a, have this tonic accent on them. Like, languages in French don't. Hmm. Accents in French are just simply based at the end of phrases and things. They don't have the idea. Words don't, you don't have to, every time in English, when you learn a word, you have to learn where the accent is. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the challenges. Like when people learn French, they have to learn gender, uh-huh. which you don't have. And when you learn English, you have to learn where the accent falls and things, mm. which is a, that's why we look at things and say, I wonder where, you know, if you read it, you have all these words, you have to wonder, I wonder where the accent would be. I've actually noticed that with my uh, son as we're reading together. Yeah, he can sound out the word, but it's not until I give him the, the uh the 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 cadence of it that oh okay then i get it yeah (laughs) but this guy had as one of he was a genius for cadence it's one of the glories of english uh is the is that it's one of the beautiful things about english when you hear it it's poetry and things it's a strong rhythms to english and this guy mastered he was just an artist of cadence and that's why later on we're going to find that two-thirds of his word-for-word translation of the new testament survived all everything (laughs) <laughs> nice it's still you know it was so well done you just can't beat it yeah yeah okay it was not only accurate but it was just beautifully beautifully uh something you could really read and read well yeah so this guy is a scholar and a, a real literary talent yeah great okay so we've got tyndale um and he's his project is sat left um sadly unfinished but he does a really really great job so who comes next well, we have miles coverdale uh, he comes, actually, he starts his uh, work a year before Tyndale dies. And he's the, the person we have the first printed Bible, the entire Bible in English, the mm-hmm. first printed copy. Now, remember, we said the first complete Bible was Wycliffe, but that was never printed. That was before printing. The first, and we have, it wasn't a complete version that was printed for, um, for Tyndale. But Miles Coverdale won the entire Bible in English. Sadly, he sort of step, took a step backwards, though. What he really did with this is instead of going to the original languages, what he did is he relied a lot on saying, what are all the trans... It's sort of like somebody going to Bible Hub or um, Bible Gateway yeah, and looking at different translations, sort of saying, oh, here's what, if you look at them all together, this is probably... Yeah, about what it means. So he, he used two Latin translations, the Vulgate and a more modern modern translation to, uh, you know, that they had done at Renaissance time. They did Tyndall's English translation, which is good, and they did Luther and Zwingli had good get German versions. Right, right. So he basically took those and sort of put them together, you know, sort of came up with, you know, look at what everybody translated the line. And that was really what moved him was sort of, uh, sort of, sort of a putting this confluence of those translations. Okay. Yeah. But it must've been a powerful thing though, to have the first complete printed Bible in English though. It must've left a really lasting legacy. Yeah. And he doesn't go away. Uh, we're going to see him. This guy's a busy guy. I mean, he's going to come <laughs> back. Okay. But, well, but uh, you know, but this is, is, is the first time it appears. But um, one of the things we have early on that's going to be a problem we'll find out is printing at this time is extraordinarily clumsy. They have these big books called folios. Uh-huh. Yeah. Imagine, like, they look like coffee table books gone crazy. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're really big. 
and they're very expensive, you know, et cetera. So it's available, but this is not something you just go down and pick up a copy. Right. We'll see Miles again later. So let's move on. Oh, yeah. To uh, to Thomas Matthew. Well, Thomas Matthew didn't do anything, but it's actually the work of somebody called John Rogers who took on Thomas Matthew's name. Uh, it comes out basically, um, uh, you know, two years later. Okay. And what it was was a composite work because we everybody could clearly see the weaknesses of the Coverdale Bible. What people loved it was the whole Bible. Yeah. But what they didn't like is they say, look, here's what he said. Why don't we take the, Tyndale stuff is really great. So why don't we take everything Tyndale published and make sure to just put that as part of the Bible. We're just going to we're not going to try to do anything. We get forget Coverdale stuff. Anything Tyndale that we use Tyndale stuff. Yeah. But because he's a friend of Tyndale, this is neat. He had the manuscripts of the work Tyndale had done on Joshua through Chronicles. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a big find. Yeah. That was a big find and he had it. So we're so grateful to him. So he brought that in. So basically he had all the Bible going up to Chronicles plus the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And he said everything else I'll use Coverdale. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, so <laughs> so we can have a whole Bible. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, now, I mean, but that's going to include the the Psalter, though, right? So Co- yes. Coverdale's got the Psalter. <laughs> nice. Coverdale's got it covered. Cool. Okay, great. So okay. so we've got you know Tyndale's published stuff, Tyndale's unpublished stuff, and then using Coverdale to fill in the gaps. Fill in the gaps. Saying okay. if we have to have something, it's better than nothing. Okay, great. Okay. Then we had Richard Tavner's a neat guy. What he basically does is he takes the Thomas Matthew Bible we just talked about and revised a bit, but he's really good at Greek. Mm-hmm. And he actually did some tweaking to Greek issues with Tyndale's New Testament. Tyndale did a wonderful job, but he wasn't the he wasn't as good at Greek as Richard Tavner mm-hmm. was. Yeah. So what's really neat about this, when Richard Tavner made an, made an, uh, amended the text, that's always stayed with us. Sure. So those changes, the sort of the standard Tyndale text is with Greek corrections by Tavener. I see. So his his great contribution is that the later contribution of Tyndale always comes to the prism of Tavner who sort of corrected a few things that could have been better from the Greek. Okay. Okay. I see. But he doesn't, um, but this is the uh, New Testament here and he doesn't embark on some kind of large scale project beyond that. No. Well, he takes the Matthew, Thomas Matthew's Bible. Basically yeah. what he does with that Bible, he makes some revisions. But the principal thing is since he was a Greek, uh, he was a, a serious student of Greek. Although actually he was a lawyer in his background. Hmm. He was a lawyer actually like the guard lords, uh, something of the seal. I forgot what some title with that, but he, um, you know, so he's actually, but, yeah. but he went to Oxford and he, I think it was Oxford, but he had, he had good Greek and he's proud of his Greek and he wanted to help out and he did a good job. Okay. Well, these up to this point sound, you know, very much like, I guess, academic or individual efforts, but you know, at, at what point does the state get involved? Well, actually it's towards the end of the reign of Henry VIII is uh, since he, uh, you know, the, to prove our bona fides, among other things, as, as, as children of the Reformation, because he's very conservative theologically, mm-hmm. is they initiate, during Henry's reign, uh, back in 1538, they begin the process. Uh, he doesn't die until 1547. So, I mean, Henry said, we need to have a Bible, the whole Bible in English. He yeah. agrees with this. Is part of, we, we are very much children of the Reformation. So he thought Coverdale had the best reputation. Everybody goes back to Coverdale. Mm-hmm. So they took Coverdale. He leads the effort. And he took the Thomas Matthew Bible again with the revisions, you know, from Tavener. Okay. And he looks at it again. And they put out, this is the first author. It's called the Great Bible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not the pretty good Bible or good enough Bible. The, the Great Bible, uh, which also has great in the sense of big. Because remember, in older English, great, like we talk about someone being great with child. 
like in the King yeah. James Bible. So great <laughs> right. doesn't mean saying, wow, they thought it was great. No, I mean, great in a sense was a really big book. I mean, yeah, it was yeah, the great yeah. Bible. It's a big old folio, yeah. And its real secret to success is it was authorized um, for use in church, saying anyone now in the churches of England, when you read the Bible, use it in the liturgy, you have to use this version. Okay. We don't want I people see. doing their own translations. We want, you know, a standard version every, you know, that it's reliable. Mm -hmm. And they ordered a copy to be put in every single church in England. Okay. Every wow. church in England had it's funny because when they put these copies out, books were so valuable they actually had to chain them. Yeah. It wasn't so people would sort of read them so they could stay there like a library and people everyone could go. The idea is you could go, always go to the church and read the book. Well, that's cool because, you know, I mean, as we've talked about before, Henry's very Catholic uh, yes. theologically, but he seems to be very uh, excited about the um, about the, the the scriptures actually being available. Oh, he is, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And he had theological training. Remember, originally, no one expected him to be king of England. Right. So they gave him the theological training. So he took a serious interest in these matters. Yeah. Okay, so um, so we've got the great Bible, right? Um, but obviously, the Reformation gets a little bit more tumultuous from there. So let's talk about the ones that come next. Well, the trouble is when Henry dies in 1547, what happens is Mary Tudor comes to the throne. She's Catholic. Mm -hmm. you know, So she basically, uh, suddenly, people who were really uh, very much on the Protestant side really had to leave for the continent. Yeah, yeah. And while they were doing this, they said, this would be a good time to revise this great Bible now from an even more Protestant view as far as translation and things. Sure. So these people basically get a number of these refugees get together and they issue a Bible in Geneva. What a surprise, Calvin's Geneva. Yeah, so there you they go. They issued a version which came to be known as, you'll never guess this, in a thousand years. The Geneva Bible. Oh, wow, good. Okay. Who knew in I, 1560? I love it when names make sense in history. I got to tell you, the thing that's neat about this, this is the Bible. We are a lot to the Geneva Bible. This is the Bible that made the English-speaking peoples love the Bible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? For several reasons. One of the is so practical. They really wanted a Bible. They wanted this to get everybody. So the first thing is the trouble with the old Bibles before now, like the, the great Bible, I think it was the big Bible, is that that's its problem. It was way, way expensive, and you couldn't bring it anywhere. You know, again, it's like having, yeah. imagine one of those, those old dictionaries when I was a young man, I don't think you have them anymore. Because you have these huge dictionaries, it would be a whole right, table. Right, right. Yeah, no, I remember. And who could have a book? Who could afford it? So it was issued in really very small size. Yeah. Something more like a book like we would have. You could actually carry this in thing. In quarto, right? Which it yes. didn't mean like if, you, if you've got the folio, which is the giant page that comes out of the printing machine, um, this time we would print that same page. We'd split it up into four and put, you know, four copies yeah. of the same page and then cut those. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a we've we've got a quarto Bible here. And if you really get smaller, it's octavo. Sure. You know, <laughs> we can get those breaking down. But this was practical size. And here's another thing. We remember if you've seen in modern German until the Second World War, the Germans use a special script. Yeah. You know that you know they use it, which is seem uh, which actually seems unreadable. I mean, even Germans find it very very hard to to read it. And we had this very heavy sort of pseudo Gothic script we use in English for Bibles. It's very hard when you read English to read it. It's just yeah. it's very pretty, but it's very hard to read. So they invented on the continent for classical translations. They had a very simplified Roman alphabet, which we all use today. Mm -hmm. We think of as regular reading. It's so easy to read. Well, this is the first time we printed something in that. Okay. They said, why don't we use the regular Latin print, which yeah. is so easy to read, doesn't look fancy, it's just as plain readable. Yeah. So they had readable, and then something else, you'll love this. Why don't we put the numbers next to the verses? Yeah, hey, why well, don't we, verse, verse numbering. Not really caught on. 
Yeah, so we have the numbering of the verses that's put actually printed in the Bible there, the numbering of the verses. You don't have to say, well, you know, somewhere in Matthew is towards two-thirds through. No, you can actually say, oh, (laughs) here's where it is. It was enormously popular, and it had all the best of the tradition thus far. They really, they they did a really nice, uh, you know, a nice, uh, nice job of this. It had more than 140 printings in the next 80 years. Okay, yeah. It's the Bible that was used by the Puritans. Yeah, yeah. They're, they were yeah. Bible people, and this is everyone had this. Uh-huh. And it's also the Bible of Shakespeare and John Bunyan for Pilgrim's Progress. Okay. This was yeah. their Bible. There's no King James Bible for them. It didn't <laughs> exist yet. This was the Bible, but this is what caused everybody to really get used to it. It really made it popular, put it in the hands of everybody, and people loved it. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I had the privilege of doing some you know, a lot of work and reading on English Bible translation when I was in grad school. And, you know, this was the one that, you know, they just couldn't keep out of anywhere. <laughs> like people were smuggling it in. People had it all over the place. Yeah, it was yeah. so easy to do. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, let's also talk about um, the Bishop's book, or the Bishop's Bible. Um, where does this come from? Well, guess what happens when Elizabeth comes to the throne after Mary, Mary dies. Well, she again is, uh, you know, ends that the the attempt to sort of move back to, to Roman practice. So what she does say, okay, what we need to do uh, is get back, and the Bible is so essential to the Reformation. Hey, let's have Bibles in the churches again. But they found out something that's interesting: there were not not enough of the big Bibles to go around. Mm-hmm. They just weren't. There weren't that many around to fill all the churches of England. Yeah, and they said, why don't we take advantage of that to simply do our own? And uh, we'll do an- another, uh, you know, why don't we go ahead and, and do our own instead? And it was led by Charles Parker. Okay, and this became uh, with, became the, the second authorized version. This replaced the Great Bible as the new, the, the, the new authorized version, meaning the stuff you read in church. It was ordered to be placed in every uh, church in England. And it was so good that it's the basis. This was the, this, the King James Bible is a revision of the Bishop's Bible. Hmm. Okay, I see. I see. So th- this really lays the groundwork here for what's to come. Yeah. Well, then let's talk about the big one. You know, the King James Bible. Um, you know, obvi- obviously, this is a huge literary milestone. You know, probably on the order of Shakespeare. Absolutely. For the English language in general. a monument. It's like the Luther Bible in German. It's a monument to the language. So this is a big, you know, this this is a big deal for the English language, not just for the the Christian faith um, or the Anglican church. So this this comes out in 1611, finally. But where where does it begin? Where does the effort begin? Well, it begins, ironically, with a Scotsman. Uh, James (laughs) the sixth of Scotland becomes James the first of England. Yep, that's right. Okay, so he takes over, and they decide there are still arguments to 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 commission a revision of the uh, Bishop's Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay, it has to be again be based on the original languages. We we'll go back; everything is based on the original languages. Now, one of the things that had caused a lot of of problem with Bibles until then had been people always put footnotes, which were always very tendentious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the Geneva Bible was a big uh, offender here. They had quite a lot of um, theological interpretive notes, you know, kind of littering the page. Or worse. Yeah. I mean, what I have, well, no, I'm saying, for example, in Tyndall's Bible, when, when he put out his edition of the, um, of the books of Moses, uh-huh. remember there's a point there saying they asked the people to donate for the, for the construction of, the, um, of the, the tent of meeting. Yeah. 
Yeah. So they say one thing, so much was coming, they finally said, enough, we have enough. <laughs> and he has a footnote saying, can you imagine our prelate saying enough? <laughs> <laughs> we have those kind of witty comments in Bible notes and things. And so they said, let's have one where no marginal notes. We want this truly to be just the word of God. Let it speak for itself. Don't say, here's what it says, but here's what we think it should mean theologically. Let the Bible speak for itself. You know, it's funny, actually, when one of the one of the Bibles I got the chance to, it was actually an original, but I got the chance to, you know, take a, a look through, um, did some work on was, there was a certain Bible translation that had a, uh, a I, I believe it was a Geneva Bible right next to a Catholic translation of, into English that I'll talk about later. And they had these dueling footnotes. Um, so I think it was, it was a Protestant production, uh, but they had literally the, you know, the Catholic footnotes on one side and then they have the protestant footnotes on the other side and the protestant ones were clearly answering and talking back to the catholic ones so oh yeah <laughs> you've got theological debate going on on the page so i can see how with the king james version actually having just the scripture with very very sparse cross references and you know on, notes that were only meant to clarify things could carry you know a kind of authoritative power here so we don't have the opinions of men here. Here's just the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And they were so careful about just the Bible that when you go from one language to another, we just don't say things exactly the same way in different languages. And so sometimes in English, you'd have to add words just to make sense, to show that this wouldn't... And so whenever they did that, they would actually print those in italics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this day, if you look at the King James Bible, it means it has that sense, but it, that separate word doesn't actually appear as such. So they really wanted to remove any possible doubt right. as to what they were doing. So that's why you'd see words in, like, I think in nowadays, if you look at, especially like the New American Standard Bible, you'll see certain words in italics. Um, it's to say, you know, this word doesn't literally appear, but, you know, we need it in English to connect the thought. Um, that's right, especially so since uh, what our, reader, our listeners might not know sometimes is that in languages like Latin and Greek, they're called inflected. That is to say, the words change forms very often instead of using prepositions or word placement. Yeah, yeah. And so instead of having a preposition, you know, instead of saying for someone, you would simply say you just uh, change the form of the word would mean for. You don't actually even have to use the prepositions. There are a lot of things like that, ways of uh, speaking that just, you have to change them a little bit to make it English. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. the same thought, but you just have to. And they wanted to make sure that was clear. Now, let me tell you the miracle of this Bible. You know, back in the, in the, in the uh, early days before, before our Lord, when they, they translated the Septuagint, they claimed it was a miracle. That 70 guys had translated. But I'm going to give you a genuine miracle here. Mm -hmm. This is a committee work. And in all of human history, it's the only time a committee has created something beautiful. <laughs> so this is truly the only time a committee has created something truly beautiful. So a single guy didn't translate the King James Version. This was a bunch of people. Yeah, 54 translators were involved, and they broke them into six teams. Now, back in those days, the common word for what we'd call a team was called a company. Mm -hmm. So they said there were six companies, and they had two companies at each of three sites, which are the key critical sites for intellectual work in England, Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster, which is the capital, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and Westminster. So yeah. two teams at each site. And what they did is each of those six teams was assigned books that they would be the primary translator of, that they would actually go back to the Hebrew or Greek and translate, okay, which they, um, uh, which they did. Then they agreed that each one of the six teams would look at all the work of the other teams. Mm. 
Wow. And they would give their comments, and they'd try to settle them by correspondence. they say, hey, here's what we thought. We suggest you change this. And if wow. they could agree, you had a deal. I can't imagine this even working over email today. How did they get this done? One wonders, because it only took nine months. Of, they did nothing else for nine months. Okay. And yeah. by these, as you know, in England, these are not far apart. That's true. Yeah. Physically, Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster are not far apart. Yeah. Okay. Then another thing they had is, if they couldn't agree, they had a final committee of six which basically had two from each of those sites, Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster, that we, everybody agreed would solve any differences that had, until that date had not had consensus. Okay. And they were blessed by a brilliant general editor, Lancelot Andrews, one of our great writers. Yes, yes, okay. He was the guy who was basically, he's first on the list of translators, uh, but he basically was the 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 the, the, uh, the head honcho here for this effort. Mm-hmm. So, so it's finally done in 1611, but it's sometimes called the authorized edition. Does that mean? Well, remember we we had two Bibles that were quote authorized. Yeah. You know, we had the we had first of all the Great Bible, the really big Bible, the Great Bible, and then we had the Bishop's Bible. We this is what called authorized, but actually, it's ironic. Uh, historians point out it was never actually authorized. We'd have to go through. Uh, you know, it'd have to go through the, 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 the church body and all through through parliament. That actually never happened. Mm. But it everyone took it as authorized. This print is called the authorized version. But at the time, it was not actually authorized, but it became the authorized version. Okay, I see. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was one of the reasons that's so caught on is the team that they had were all people who were like, were not only were language people, but they were public speakers and things. They actually were, gave sermons and things. So they really had this sense of how things sound when you read them out loud. Yeah. Yeah, these were church. One thing we do as Anglican churches, a lot of others in the Reformed tradition don't do, is we always read Scripture in church. Right. You know, a lot of churches, people come to an Anglican church. I'm amazed, or uh, from some of the other sister traditions, and they say, "Well, we have sermons, and we read about, we talk about the Scripture. We never actually read the Scripture." Yeah. Well, Anglicans really read a lot of Scripture in church. That's right. That's and right. And they're saying, if you're reading this, they really wanted something that would sound sound good when read out loud. That's right. And so its literary quality is really special. Matter of fact, people have noticed that, do not misunderstand me, the Bible is glorious and divinely inspired. But let me tell you something about, uh, I'll give you an example from French, okay? You as an English speaker are probably, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, I'm sure you must have read him in high school, mm-hmm. things, right? Edgar yeah. Allan Poe, would be considered a second-tier American writer. Interesting, you know about him, but no one would use the word great to describe Edgar Allan Poe. I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think he's not bad, but he's certainly second or third tier. Sure. Well, in France, any collection, if you look at English, you'll always find he's simply called Edgar Poe. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's considered one of the great writers of English. Okay. <laughs> now, you're saying, if you're like me, a foot in both worlds, why is that so? Let me tell you. Because he had the fort- he was fortunately translated into French by Charles Baudelaire, the great poet, one of the great poets of all time. Hmm. Okay. And so his French is infinitely better than, than Poe's English. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So. <laughs> it's better than the original as far as the literary qualities. Well, the New Testament itself has all sorts of different registers. You know, some are glorious Greek. I mean, when you think mm-hmm. of, um, uh, you know, Hebrews is really, really uh, first-rate Greek. Luke's gospel is the best of the gospels for the Greek quality. Yeah. Some is really pedestrian. Um, yeah. Revelation is really pedestrian Greek. I mean, they're just different levels. They're, they're divinely inspired, but as far as a literary work, if you're reading it just sure. for its literary quality, the King James Bible is better than the original as far as literature. <laughs> nice. Yeah, okay. And so it really uh, you know, came to this, uh, where people fell in love with it. it. So without anything, it just simply became the uniform language Bible of the Protestant English-speaking world, frankly, unchallenged until the first 
murmurs began to appear with additional knowledge of manuscripts and things in the 1850s. Okay, so... And people said, and change in the language. So for English, it really elevates the register of, of, of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly the feel. I must say, if you read the original languages in Hebrew and Greek, the feel of the English Bible is not that of very often the original text because it is very beautifully literary, whereas very often they're very straightforward. Hmm. Sometimes hmm. they're glorious that way. You know, it depends what you're looking about. Some of the... Some of the very prosaic passages, yeah, you know, are profound in their meaning, but the actual writing is not very literary. Everything's literary in the King James Bible. Okay, I mean, so, you could you could read the chron the you could read the um, genealogies of Chronicles and get inspired. You know? <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Okay, so they really, so they really, um, they really uh, adorn the scriptures with with really high rate literary translation. And one of the results is, I think, that makes a difference is a lot of people, if you're raised in the English-speaking world, you just associate the, the Bible has played a huge, huge role in literature and things. Everybody, every any writer in English knew the English Bible. It affected them, in net, even if they weren't believers. Everyone was affected. Uh, Lincoln, who was not a particularly uh, religious man, loved reading the Bible because the English was so good. He just loved it, but he wasn't a devout Christian. But he loved the Bible. You have to understand in other Christian lands, this wasn't true in France. I assure you, the Bible just doesn't play that role. The Bible was the Latin Bible. And so the, the French translations that appeared are not very good. No one would fall in love with the Oliveton Bible. Hmm. Hmm. No one at all ever would fall in love with it. It would, just, it would help get you through if you just want to know what the message was. But it's very, very workmanlike. Yeah, yeah. So there is no equivalent, except the Luther Bible. The Luther Bible with the German-speaking peoples. yeah. Yeah. Has a similar role. But these are the only two languages where you have a version of the Bible that truly won the hearts of regular people in their own language. Hmm. In most of the Catholic world, the Bible is the Vulgate. So <laughs> clearly this is one of the great fruits of the Reformation. Um, but, you know, what about the Catholics? You, you know, I mean, as the Reformation is going on, obviously uh, the Roman Catholic Church is also being very active in their own way, you know, sometimes re uh, reacting to the Reformation, um, other in other ways, uh, reforming the church by its own lights. Um, but what about the, the the Roman Catholics? Do they get in on on any English translation? Oh yes. Now that there are Bibles everywhere, there's no way uh, that English speaking Catholics uh, could not have a Bible. There's yeah. no way of not doing this. And the Catholic Church was worried about what they thought were tendentious translations, certain verses being. In, in, being translated in a way which wasn't mm -hmm, favorable, mm -hmm. or especially with notes and things. So they decided they couldn't translate, the, you know, they couldn't legally worship in England, let alone translate the Bible or print it there. So a number of them went to France. And there in eastern France, you have Douai and Reims. Uh, it looks like Reims, I guess, in English. Yeah. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it, it's called Reims in France, you know, it's uh, Douai and Reims. And they, trans they put out a copy of the New Testament in 1582 and a copy of the Old Testament in 1609. Okay, yeah. Now, something about these translations is the Council of Trent had said that the Vulgate was authoritative. It doesn't mean it outranks the original language, but it says you can be 100% sure when it comes to faith and morals, it's never wrong in faith and morals as a translation. Yeah. We could never say that as part of any translation. But, you know, they, they basically made it the official Bible of the church. So people didn't even bother. They simply said, uh, you know, the safe thing is to go to the Vulgate. So this is completely translated from the Latin Vulgate. I see. Okay. And what strikes you from this is it is a literal translation. It's, uh, in my view, it's um, it's very hard to read. It's very, very yeah. clunky. Yeah, yeah. 
The word beautiful, I don't think, has ever been used to describe the Douay Rheims Bible. <laughs> I will leave it to you in your evaluation of the English, but it strikes me that it's uh, really, uh, really klutzy. Yeah. Uh, and it's, what it, it's so literal that people you can find with traditionalist Catholics now, Latin Mass Catholics, they'll have a Bible that will have the Douay Rheims opposite the Latin Vulgate. Because since one is literally translated from the other, yeah. Otherwise, if you have two done from the original languages, there's no reason to believe the translation will exactly line up. These always line up. So if the text is wrong based on later manuscript developments, you know, you'll always have it translated that way in the... If the Vulgate was wrong, the Douay Rance will be wrong. Sure, sure. But there's some things that are beautiful in it. You know, stop clock is right twice a day. <laughs> but no, that's not doing justice to it because it wasn't that bad. But I mean, it's compared to the King James Bible, it just can't hold up. Yeah as far as the beauty and things. There were some actually really good renderings where, and they, when they did the King James, they looked at them and said, hey, this is really good. I mean, the, the, the sense of the English is good. So we actually have a number of, 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 of translations from the douay Rance version, which actually were incorporated into the King James Bible. The, the scholars of douay Rance were very good scholars. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. They were doing it from the Latin Vulgate, but the Latin Vulgate was actually itself a pretty good translation for what was available to Jerome and things. Actually, one of the neat things of the Latin Bible is that what Jerome tried to do, since Latin and Greek have a lot of similarities as to their basic structure of inflective languages, what Jerome does, you know, I teach Latin to people, you know, I give lessons and things. I've got to tell you, Jerome does, he often actually reproduces the Greek, the Greek structures in a way that wouldn't be natural to Latin sometimes. Okay, yeah. They're Latin, but you know, I mean, so I just looking at the Latin Vulgate very often, you say, oh, I, can, I can tell you what the Greek is. Yeah. <laughs> Because sure. this is not the first way you'd say it in Latin, but you say he's trying whenever it's possible to try to be something that corresponds. Yeah. And, and it's also the case, actually, that the Dewey Rance, in, in some places, some scholars have pointed out that in some places that they, you know, even though they're translating directly from the Latin Vulgate, uh, in some places they just kind of can't get away from Tyndale either. There are some spots where you've got more or less oh, yeah. Tyndale's rendering there in the Dewey Rance. Um, I kind of like this. I, I, I liked this a lot. Loved studying this because it shows, you know, especially for us Anglicans, some of the, you know, just the practical interpenetration of the Catholic and the Reformed traditions that, you know, some translations found the other side's renderings really good. So they used them and vice versa. And you see the one in the other as the process goes along. I think it's a good analogy for our Anglican tradition. We take whatever good that we find. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Anything else uh, you have for us on this uh, amazing history of English Bible translation? I've got to tell you, the thing that really characterizes Anglicans, they'd be thought of elsewhere in previous generations. These were the people of the two books. Hmm. You found an Anglican, if you're traveling or something, you find a copy of the prayer book and a copy of the Bible. Amen. King James Bible. Yep. Those two. And so the people of the books that way, the, the Bible and the, and the prayer book. And, uh, you know, one of the great contributions, you know, later on with English, uh, with the English uh, settlement around the world and colonies and things is this Bible tradition everywhere, the everywhere the English went, they brought the Bible, a love for the Bible everywhere in a way that's uh, almost unparalleled.
Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.